Okay, um, this is the final stretch of a sermon series that's been going on now for a couple of months entitled, This is Awkward. And if you're new here, you're visiting with us for the first time, you don't know what this is all about, uh, we, we just felt like it's, it's a shame that there are, there are issues that are of massive importance to people everywhere, and for various reasons, churches tend to not talk about them. And it's not because God is silent about it. It's not because the scripture doesn't teach on these issues. It's frankly because it's a little too awkward. It's a little too uncomfortable. It's a little too risky. You know, it's, it's really easy to stand here and wave your Bible and say, listen, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And I'm going to stand on that truth and I'm going to stand on that promise. And if that offends you, I'm sorry, but Jesus didn't come to make sure he didn't offend. He came to save the lost. That's fairly easy for me to do as a preacher. What is a little bit more challenging for me to do is talk to you about your sex life. That's a little more challenging. It's a little more challenging for me to talk to you about your finances. We, we've been covering really three major topics in this series. Money, which is hard to talk about because everybody's so um, touchy on the subject and worried about whether churches are just trying to get in people's pockets and all that stuff. Um, we talked about sex for the last several weeks, which may have been the best attendance we've ever had around here, by the way. <laughs> Not to mention by far the best attendance we've had in the young adult group, just saying. Um, but uh, we talked about that for the last few weeks, and, and that was more awkward than money, I think, for obvious reasons. And now we get to the extremely awkward stuff. People have been saying, well, you got through it. Nobody's, nobody seems to be too mad at what you had to say about money or sex. I promise you somebody's going to be mad about what I have to say about politics, okay? This is the dangerous part. This is the part of the series where our greeters are armed guards and they are checking people's purses for like rotten fruit and things like that that you might come to express your opinion toward the pastor with. Um, this is the really, really awkward stuff. And in all kidding aside, in all seriousness, um, I have just been praying my brains out um, as I prepare for this, this series as a whole and particularly for this part on politics. And if you've seen me this week and we've talked, chances are I told you, hey, just be praying for me because uh, we're getting to politics on Sunday and and seriously, this is the one that ruffles people's feathers the most. And I, I really want to present God's word, God's truth, what's on the heart of the Holy Spirit, not my own ideas, not my own political agenda, not any of that kind of stuff. And I also want not just to present what needs to be presented, I want you to receive what you need to receive. And sometimes on an issue like politics where most of us already have strong opinions and we can name our camp and we can explain where we fit in the scheme of things politically, um, a lot of times our minds are closed, our hearts are closed, we're not open to what we might learn from somebody else. I mean, just take for uh, example this last election, the last presidential election and what happened on social media, 
right? Or even what happened in traditional news media. You get people on opposite sides and they are just screaming at each other and yelling at each other, disrespecting each other. And who of you changed your political position because of what the other one had to say on, in that? Because some, some friend of yours, you're conservative and your liberal friend posted some rant or your liberal and your conservative friend posted some video and you went, oh, now I get it. Now I understand. That's not what we do. We, we go, oh, liberal, oh, oh, conservative, oh, Republican, I'm a Democrat. I don't, that's, that's how we do this. And because of that, our hearts are closed. So um, I just feel compelled to, to stop and, and pray for us, to pray that the Lord will help me not to get out in front of God and say what doesn't need to be said and to help you to actually hear what God wants to say to you because God might just want to change something in your heart. He might just want to change something in your mind and we need to be open to that. So let's just pray. Father, as we think about ourselves, we realize that we don't know everything. We, we come to our opinions and we hold them tightly for various reasons, but we don't know everything. What we really need is the truth. And Jesus, you are the truth. So we ask you to speak to us, Lord. We ask you to open your word in our minds at the same time. We ask you by your Holy Spirit to just bathe us with understanding. We ask you to humble us, Lord, to help us to put down our pride and our arrogance that tells us we've already got everything figured out. And we ask you to open our heart to a new way of thinking about all of this that maybe we've never thought of before. May you reign during this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was, well, 14 months before I was born, President Kennedy was assassinated. So uh, I was born in January of 65. He was assassinated in November. It was in November, October, November, right? Of 63. And uh, if you are the generation that came before me, if you're in my parents' generation, I promise you remember everything about that day. You remember where you were when you heard and all that kind of stuff. But it happened right before I was born. And uh, my, my family was uh, Democratic. My father was a, a union guy, a Democrat. And uh, so from the time I was a baby, you know, President Kennedy was heroic in our household. And you go back in history and you look and you go, well, you know, he had a very short presidency. A lot of the stuff he was trying to get done got derailed because his presidency was cut short, right? And, but in our minds, he, he was one of the great presidents in American history. And some of that is because he did some really valuable things. And some of that is because he got assassinated. Um, but he was heroic in our house. And so I grew up going, wow, President Kennedy, he, he's the greatest man who ever lived and um, one day, I remember, I was probably 12, 13 years old. I, I just sat down with my dad and I said, Dad, what is the difference really between Republicans and Democrats? And my dad, being a Democrat, he said this. He said, uh, you know, if to put it simply, the difference is this. Democrats are for the working man and Republicans are for the rich. That's what he told me. And so that was my, I said, okay, that helps. Now I understand, right? Rich people, Republican, middle class and poor people, Democrats. Now I get it. All right. I was assigned to write a paper at school. 
And I thought, well, I've just learned this interesting political science stuff from my dad, you know, and so I'm going to write on that. And so what I did was I sat down and wrote a paper entitled, The Kennedys, America's Great Republican Family. Now, if you're too young to understand this, the Kennedys are Democrats, you guys. They are not Republicans. They're, the, the, they're on the logo of the Democratic, you know, banners, right? But they were one of the richest families in America. They were one of the most powerful, wealthy families. And so my dad said, rich people are Republicans and poor people are Democrats. So I said, okay. And I wrote this paper did no research, did no homework, just wrote a paper entitled The Kennedys, America's Great Republican Family. And I got the paper back and my teacher had a good sense of humor. My teacher marked it in a big red pen with an A at the top and then crossed through the A and wrote C. And then at the bottom, he wrote something to the effect of, I think you should go back and do your research. That was my political understanding. Here's my point. A lot of us really don't have as much political understanding as we give ourselves credit for, but we sure talk a lot. We sure have opinions. We sure have something to say. We sure know which camp we're in, and we know what our camp has to say, and we know what our camp's way of thinking is, and if we're more on the liberal side, then we are for things that liberals are for, and if we're more on the conservative side, then we're for things that conservatives are for. And here's the interesting thing I find among Christians, that when I talk to Christians in this church, when I talk to Christians in these communities, what I find is that most of us have uh, fairly set political views. We belong to one party. We're either conservative or liberal and so forth, right? The interesting thing is, and I, this is coming in not only in conversations, but also we have this uh, thing where you can ask me any kind of uh, question related to the topics of this sermon series, and it's all um, confidential, and I don't know who's asking the question. And I got a lot of things that are not questions, but comments. And I got a whole bunch of people saying things like this. And if this sounds like you and you sent this anonymous thing, don't get mad at me. I'm not quoting you. I'm just saying things like this. Um, someone would maybe say, I don't know how anyone could call themselves a Christian, an owner of a Bible, and actually vote for Trump. And then the next day, I open up an email, and here's this person that says, how could anyone have the Holy Spirit in their lives and support liberal ideals? And what's interesting about this is that whoever writes those kind of things, and then I've had a number of face-to-face -face conversations similar to that, whoever writes those things assumes that if you're a Christian, you agree with them politically. And they're probably sitting right next to somebody in church on Sunday who has the exact opposite political opinion but loves Jesus just as much. And so one of the things that it, we're going to have to deal with right off the bat if we're going to make any progress in this discussion of politics is we're going to have to understand that before conservative values, before liberal values, before any uh, ideology or political party affiliation or anything like that, we have to get down to this. The most obvious character quality that shows Christian maturity, in my opinion, 
is humility. You show me a person who is truly mature in Christ, I will show you a humble person. There has to be a, a true humility because the closer you get to Christ, the more you, you see yourself in light of His glory and you realize who you are. You realize how limited you are. You realize how limited your understanding is. You realize how limited your perspective is. And if we don't embrace humility, there will never be submissiveness, which is what the Bible calls every one of us to be filled with. And without humility and submissiveness, we're just going to stand and wave our banners and shout our slogans. And you know what's going to happen? Division. Now, is our country divided? It's the worst I've ever seen in my lifetime. And, and, and it's not just along the lines that you think it would be along. It's, it's along um, party lines. But it's more than that. It's along racial lines, but it's more than that. It's along even um, um, the, the, the lines of generation, but it's deeper than that. The interesting thing is it's also along religious lines, but it's more than that. That within Christianity, we have real, genuine, sincere Christians who have very differing views on this. And if God was to say, you know, in simple terms, hey, what, what do I want my church to look like in this world? He would probably have a lot to say, but, but part of it we know from Scripture. Part of it is when Jesus prayed for us in the high priestly prayer, he prayed for his disciples and he prayed for all who believe because of their testimony. That's us, right? When Jesus prayed for us, when Jesus prayed for his church, and it's recorded for us in the book of John, when he prayed in the high priestly prayer, he prayed that we would be what? One. He prayed that we would be united he prayed that what brings us together would be so strong that it would outpower everything that separates us. Are we, very, are we of various races? Yes. Are we from various uh, places? Yes. Do we have various values? Yes. Do we have various backgrounds? Yes. Do we have various needs? Yes. Well, you know what we have in common? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And that trumps everything. Oh, I just used the word trump. I didn't. I'm endorsing no candidates. That, that outstrips everything, right? I didn't mean to be, I didn't, anyways. So this divisiveness thing is getting worse. So the enemy is setting himself up to divide us as much as he possibly can. I want us to understand this. This talk on politics is not about politics. This talk on politics is about the body of Christ, God's plan for us in the world, and how the enemy is ruining our effectiveness because of the divisions that we allow to exist among us in the local church and in the church universal. And, and the scripture says that the people out there who don't know Jesus will know that he exists when they watch our lives and they see our love for one another. It's not even our love for them that's going to convince them. It's our love for one another. And so we have a church that is, that is fractured and fragmented all the time. And, and it's on various levels. But one of them is certainly politics. And in the age of social media, 
And you guys hear me rant about this all the time, but in the age of social media, the, the kinds of stuff that we take in and consider to be truth is broader than it's ever been. And, and we see somebody post some article from some newspaper or news source that we've never heard of. We see a video where somebody's getting interviewed and then somebody makes a comment underneath. We go, wow, that's amazing. That supports my point of view. And we share it and we copy it and paste it and we retweet it and we do all that kind of stuff. And, and social media lies and propaganda are spreading at, at, at you know, unprecedented pace. And too many of us swallow it. That's problem number one. And too many of us send it out. That's problem number two. The, the amount of freedom that we have to have our voice heard in this generation is unprecedented in all of human history. You don't have to be famous. You don't have to be wealthy. You don't have to be on TV. You don't have to be on the radio. All you need is a smartphone in your pocket, and you can make your voice heard to the entire world. That is an unbelievable amount of privilege. It's an unbelievable amount of freedom, and it should be coupled with an unbelievable amount of responsibility. And the irresponsibility that I see with the way we Christians use social media disgusts me. And we have to face it. We have to deal with that. But it's not just social media. Traditional media is not helping us with this. It's not helping us at all, right? I mean, I don't want anybody to shout out your favorite news source, but, but you know, you can't name me a news source that is unbiased. Not a major one. And, and we tend to get our news from certain sources that we like, that are, we're comfortable with, and they just feed our already solidified beliefs, and we listen to stuff that is propagandized, and so we're not well educated. We've been talking a lot lately uh, in this country about the Second Amendment. I am not going to talk about that today. But you know what I am going to talk about? There was an amendment that came before the Second Amendment. It's called the... You guys are smart. Some of you are like, first, I think. I don't want to... You can shout it out. It was not a trick question. The First Amendment, right? Now, now this is high school civics pop quiz. What kinds of freedoms are granted to us in the First Amendment as American citizens? So I can say it loud and clear. What would you say? Freedom of religion, which you probably figure I want to talk about, but I don't. What else? Freedom of speech. Freedom of the press. Freedom of assembly. No, that's Second Amendment. There's, there's one more. No, it's not that. That's Second Amendment. Cole, what is it? Oh, come on, Cole. <laughs> Cole is a lawyer working for the United States government. I'm so, oh, Cole. Cole's like, yes, and I used to attend this church. I'm not coming back anymore. Okay. <laughs> the last one is the right to petition our government. Okay. All of that is in the First Amendment. Okay. Now, I could talk to you about all that kind of stuff. I actually am here to talk to you about the Bible, so bear with me for a second. This is all introduction to you guys. I said put your seatbelts on. Okay. So, so I want to talk for a second about freedom of the press, 
because in this country, we have freedom granted to the press so that the government cannot control the press. The government cannot tell the press what to write or not, or not write, what to broadcast or not broadcast and so forth, right? Freedom of the press is an essential right in a country that is a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. If we are the government then we must be informed about the facts. That's why we have to have freedom of the press so we can be informed about the facts so we can be an educated voting block. Does that make sense? But this is not what we have today. The press has freedom. The government does not control. But, but the press has sort of divided themselves into ideological camps so that whatever comes from this Cable network is fighting against whatever comes from that cable network. Whatever comes from this major newspaper is fighting against what comes from that major newspaper. And we have a lot of propaganda in the press. So the problem is we have a country in which we have this amazing, I'm going to get into this next week, but we have this amazing a historically nearly unprecedented privilege that we call a right to actually cast votes and control our own government. Do you know that you or I can run for president and become president? We, we can, there's no office in the land that, is, that it, we're not allowed. If you're a citizen of the United States and you meet the age requirements and whatnot, you could be president, you could be a congressman, a senator, you could be a judge, you could be a city council member, you could be a school board member. You know, just regular people like us. This last year, I spent some time in D.C., and I spent um, time meeting with um, senators and congressmen who, who do their work on Capitol Hill. And you know what I discovered about them? They're just people. They're just, I, I mean, they're like me. And then I was in Sacramento just this last month, and I was there at the state capitol, and I was meeting with our assemblyman and our senator, and the senator from this area, I was in his office spending time with him, I got to pray over him and all that kind of stuff. You know what I discovered? He's just a regular guy. I mean, he's literally, he's just a dude who ran for office. We live in this country where we have this unbelievable privilege that we get to govern ourselves. And yet, we are struggling because we don't even form our political opinions for the most part based on truth, but instead based upon propaganda. So this is a real problem that we're facing. And it's dangerous. And, and I'm not going to be able to solve all of that in a couple of sermons on politics. But let me tell you what I am hoping to do with this little sub-series on politics. I'm hoping to describe the problem because I'm convinced that a whole bunch of people out there when it comes to politics are trying to solve the wrong problem. The second thing I want to do is I want to give a biblical point of view on what does it look like to address the problem. And then finally, I'm hoping and praying that the Holy Spirit will move in each of our hearts in such a way that He will change us so that he can then use us to change the world. So what's the problem? What's the role of the church? What's the role of the government in addressing the problem? Is there any, excuse me, any overlap between church and government in addressing the problems that we face in our culture today? If so, what and how? What does that look like? All I know is if you went to the Democratic National Convention and you asked people, hey, what are the problems facing America today? 
You would, you would hear things like, there's a giant economic gap between the classes. You might hear about gun control. You might hear about big business and the evils of big business. You might hear about um, government, the need for more government intervention and programs to help the um, socially underprivileged and financially underprivileged and all of that. If you went to the Republican National Convention and you asked the same question, what's the problem in America today? you would get entirely different answers, wouldn't you? At the Republican convention, they would tell you, listen, the, the problem in America today is big government. Problem in America today is high taxes. The problem in America today is the failing education system. The problem in America today is that we're killing our babies through abortion. The problem in America today is that we need less government intervention in the lives of individuals. Now, these are all, whichever convention you went to, these are educated, interested, involved people. And they would give you completely different answers, not about what the answers are, but about what the problems are. And so I just decided that um, since we're looking for truth on this, maybe let's don't ask politicians. Since we're looking for truth, maybe let's ask the Word of God. Um, remember, we've been talking, we've been laying foundation for this whole series. We've been talking about these important um, foundational principles. God is creator, right? We talked about this a lot. God is creator. He created everything. God is designer. He designed everything, including you. He has a plan for your life, but you can only live the abundant life if you live it according to his design. And when you decide to get outside of his design, whether it's in your financial life or in your sex life or in your political views or whatever, when you get outside of his design, you are not going to flourish, but you are going to struggle and be unfulfilled. So we talked about creation. We talked about design. And we've talked a lot about stewardship, which is to say that nothing you have is yours, right? And we talked about this about when we were talking about money. And we said, you know, 10% does not belong to God. So whoever told you 10% belongs to God, don't listen to them. It all belongs to God. You belong to God. You have been bought with a price. And, and he gives us this whole spiel where he says, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your bodies. So even our bodies, even our sexuality is God-designed, God-given, and belongs to God, and we are stewards of even our bodies. And we talked about that for the last three weeks, right? Creation, design, and stewardship. Today, I'm going to add a fourth thing, and this is all very much by introduction, so bear with me, but, but I'm going to add a fourth thing that is absolutely foundational as a principle that if we don't get this right, we're going to get everything else wrong. And this, this is the question of what is the problem. And, and I want you to go once again to Genesis, because we've been spending a lot of time there with these foundational ideas. And I want you to go to Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, I'm going to pick it up in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it nor touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and there was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Let's just stop right there. I know this is familiar. It just kills me not to tear apart every verse in this section and give you all these great theological nuances, but that's going to be for another day. Today, we're going to do big overview. I want you to see this. God, God creates everything. For five days, he perfects the environment into which he will place man so that man can flourish, so that man can live within his design. And he places man and woman in the garden made in his image. And he says, and the two shall become one. And he creates the family. And there's, there's love and there's unity and there's a perfect unbroken relationship with God. And there's a tree and there's a serpent and man, made in the image of God, has a free will, and therefore there has to be a tree, and there has to be temptation. And man doesn't deal with the temptation very well, and he eats the fruit, and you say, well, no, it wasn't the man, it was the woman. Read it again, chauvinist. <laughs> it says, the woman ate it and gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. They ate together. They, they faced the temptation together, they failed together, and this is what theologians call the doctrine of the fall. This is where it all fell apart. This, my friends, is the problem. Look at verse 9. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So we see them both blame shifting. Immediately, this perfect unity, two shall become one. The minute there is a problem, now that sin has entered, there is brokenness, right? And Adam grabs Eve and chucks her under the bus, right? <laughs> right? And then, and then Eve, when he confronts her about it, she goes, the serpent, who, by the way, God, you made and placed in this garden, he deceived me and I ate. There's all this blame shifting. There's all of this stuff going on. There's brokenness between the husband and wife. This is the problem. If we had time, we would read through verses 14 through 19 where the curse comes. But here's the bottom line. You're familiar with the story. You know that everything in creation is cursed as a result of what we theologians call the fall. The fall is the problem. You may think the problem is defined in certain political terms. It's not. You may think the problem is economic. It's not. You may think the problem is social injustice. It's not. You may think the problem is a corrupt government. It's not. The problem is that every human being is broken to the core as a result of sin. That's the problem. And Jesus comes 
to reverse the curse. That's the good news. This is not all bad news, you guys. There's good news. The good news is Jesus comes to reverse the curse. And so what happens with this good news? That there is an answer. There is an answer. There is a solution to the problem. The solution to the problem is not a what, it's a who. And who is the solution to the problem? What? Does anybody have any confidence? Who is the solution to the problem? Okay, so you're sure, right? All right, good. I don't want to give you a C on this quiz. Jesus is the solution, okay? I think this is theology 101. If you've ever been in a Christian church, you've heard this before. I'm not telling you anything you haven't heard before. All I'm trying to do is lay the foundation for us to understand what the political life of a Christian is supposed to look like in America today, okay? But let's understand what the problem is. The problem is sin, And let's understand what the solution is. The solution is Jesus. And the lack of Jesus in people's lives is the reason that the problem keeps growing. So I don't care. Be a student of history. Go all the way back to Cain and Abel. You will find that the one with power tends to dominate and abuse and rule over the one with less power. You could see it all the way throughout human history, whether it's Egypt or Babylon or Assyria or Alexander the Great or the, uh, the Huns or the Mongols or whichever barbarian warring tribe is coming through, the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire. In every case throughout all of human history, whoever has the most power cannot be trusted with it. We humans use power to lift ourselves up even if we have to step on others to do it, right? That's the problem. And so you've got, you might think, oh, if we could just get a different party in power, that would fix it. In my lifetime, the president changes parties every few years, and it never gets better, right? In my lifetime, Congress has controlled differently. The courts have been in different conditions. All the things we think, if we could just fix the Supreme Court, that would solve everything. No, it wouldn't. If we just got Democrats in control, that would solve everything. No, it wouldn't. I heard something at this conference this week that struck me. This, this guy, had, this pastor had the guts to stand up in front of everybody. And he said this, I have news for you. There will be no Democrats in heaven. Now, some of you are like, amen, right? <laughs> and then he said, and there will be no Republicans in heaven. In fact, there's not going to be any Americans in heaven. You know, it's going to be in heaven, citizens of the kingdom of God, followers of Jesus Christ, blood-bought saints who've been washed in the blood and made new in Christ. That's who's going to be in heaven. So if you think the solutions are democratic or Republican, if you think the solutions are about fixing the courts, I'm not saying those things are unimportant. They're not unimportant. We're going to talk about that next week. But let's remember what the problem is. Let's remember the solution. I know I'm over time. I'm going to wrap this up quickly, but I'm going to ask you to bear with me because this is the point I've been trying to get to. We know the problem. We know the solution. Who carries the solution? We do. Jesus Christ, the light of the world, said to us, his followers, in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. 
You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the ones who carry the solution to a world that is dying from the problem. So what I want us to do at least is humble ourselves enough to go, listen, God did not say, Democrats, fix this. And he didn't say, Republicans, fix this. And he didn't say, government, fix this. He said, church, be the light of the world. And as we are the light of the world, guess what happens to the darkness? It goes away. But what has been happening in our lifetime? Has it been getting lighter or darker in our culture? Okay. So let's at least own it. Let's at least admit that the problem is sin. The solution is Jesus. And we're the ones with the mandate to carry the solution. How do we do that? That's what we're going to get into next week. Do we do it by standing on street corners and preach? Do we do it through programs? Do we, do we feed hungry and reach out to homeless? Do we, do we get involved in government? Should we run for office? I mean, what should we do? Should pastors stand up and endorse candidates? Should we, should we you know, tell everybody how to vote? What should we do? What should we do collectively as the body of Christ? What should we do collectively as one local church? What should we do uh, individually as saints called by God and empowered with the Holy Spirit to be the carriers of the solution? What should we do? The problem is sin. The solution is Jesus. We're the carriers of the solution. What will we do? If you want some ideas, come back next week. Let's stand and pray.